0: Take your Bibles and let's look at Luke chapter 10 where we have been as you know. I'm so very excited about the the statements that Jesus makes here. They are profound and rather striking. And so we find ourselves continuing in our study of Luke chapter 10 as he has sent 70 disciples out to take the gospel ministry in this rather urgent period before Jesus ends up in Jerusalem. It was in the European history, the Italian history, it was 1495 when when the Duke of Milan, Ludovico Sforza, asked da Vinci to paint the famous painting of Jesus with the disciples around the table. And uh, da Vinci was 43 years old at the time. He was already a renowned sculptor and painter and a genius artisan. Took him three years to paint this masterpiece, and when he completed it, he asked a friend to come and give his opinion. His friend said, it's wonderful. In fact, as Jesus was there in the middle, and the disciples were on the side, and Jesus was holding the cup from which they all drank, he said, in fact, that cup is so real, I cannot keep my eyes off of it, and da Vinci immediately took a brush and swiped over the cup to block it out. And he said, if it affects you that way, it must not remain. Nothing shall distract attention from the figure of Christ. It is a striking moment in that piece of history and becomes for us really a, a great analogy for our own Christianity, and our own proclamation and living of the gospel. That statement describes perfectly our privilege We've come to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our privilege. We point to him. We speak of him. We call attention to him as the only savior of sinners. When someone comes to our church, our joy and hope is that when they leave they will say nothing about us per se and everything about the love of Christ that permeates his people. Everything about his word, everything about his glory, everything about his praise and his worthiness. That's that's our great privilege. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1:22 and 23 the Jews ask for signs Paul said Greeks search for wisdom but we preach Christ crucified Philippians 1:18 in every way Paul said whether in pretense or in greed Christ is preached doesn't matter what somebody's motive is if they are on the same gospel team then Christ is preached I rejoice in that Philippians 1.20, my earnest hope is that Christ shall even now, as always, be exalted in my body. Whatever Paul was doing, preaching, in trial, threatened with his life, just speaking in the synagogues or discipling people in their homes, leading churches and planting pastors, that Christ would be exalted even now in all of it. Set your mind on things above and not on things of the earth. That was... That was the marching order for the Christian. We are literally saying to others by our life and our message, behold, Jesus Christ, behold. But then in that great privilege, there's also another ramification. We live and proclaim the truth of Christ, we're also doing something else besides just saying, behold, Jesus Christ. We're doing something that has eternal consequences at every level. When people hear the truth about salvation in Christ, in that moment, two spiritual dynamics are taking place. First, the grace of God is falling upon their ears. I love that, it's a divine appointment. If you're here and you don't know Christ, it's a divine appointment, God brought you here. The grace of God is falling upon your heart, your mind, your ears, your hearing. It's in your midst, it's in front of you, it's all around you in the people of God. It's proclaimed from his word. And in God's kindness in this moment, even this morning, God has brought the message of eternal forgiveness in Christ to your doorstep. And so in that first dynamic, we are messengers of grace. We're instruments in the hand of the Lord for his mercy. But there's also a second dynamic taking place. The accountability of God is also falling on your ears. The accountability of God. To hear the truth is to be accountable for it. To hear the truth over and over and to not respond to it is to have a greater increase of accountability. We're messengers of grace as believers as these first disciples were sent out by Jesus, but were also messengers of culpability and accountability. Not accountable to us. People aren't accountable to me personally when I give them the gospel. I have no authority over them, nor are they accountable to some human judgment, let alone mine. But God, according to Matthew's gospel in chapter 10, 26, and 27, is going to bring all things to light that have been done in secret or hidden or private or conversations or messages given or even your attendance at a place where people of God worship. All of it will be brought to the bar of justice. And if one person's rejection of Christ becomes somehow settled so that it begins to influence others who hear the truth that accountability indeed culpability is even greater it's even greater first Thessalonians 2 Paul spoke of some Jewish leaders who were as he said hindering us from speaking the truth that's tragedy The Lord birthed out of His kindness as these messengers of grace went into Thessalonica, a new church, and they were loving the Lord, but then others were coming along on their heels who had rejected the truth for which they were culpable, and they were starting to hinder others in the town from accepting and receiving the truth. That's massive culpability. And so this is our privilege, when we are lights for the gospel, we are lights and messengers of grace as well as lights and messengers of accountability. We have a message. We hopefully are being transformed by it so that we live it and proclaim it. That message is very simple. Jesus Christ is the only savior of sinners. And for all who will turn from trusting in themselves and their works and trust only in his sacrificial death and his life-giving resurrection, they will be forgiven of all their guilt and they will be indwelt by the Spirit of God and they will spend eternity in holiness and righteousness with Christ. And every time we speak that truth to others, it is a profound moment of both grace and culpability. Accountability. And whoever's heart softens to that message, whether right then or over time, so that they welcome Christ by faith alone as the Savior and Lord of their life, then the grace of God has delivered them. But as we've noted in our study of the Gospel of Luke over and over again, Luke often records the highlighting of those whose heart does not soften. And they continue to deny their guilt. And they deny that they need a savior. And they frequently reject the fact that there's a coming a day when they're going to stand before Jesus Christ, as I read to you in John 5. And he will be the one to whom the Father has bestowed judgment. And their accountability before God will have increased. This is why, as you know, in the study of Luke, we've seen it over and over again. Luke chapter eight, verse eight, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Chapter eight, verse 18, therefore take care how you listen. Chapter nine, verse five, as for those who do not receive you, speaking of the first apostles he sent out, shake the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Who do you say that I am? Verse 20 of chapter nine, Peter said, you're the Christ of God. Look, a decision has to be made. Because chapter 9 verse 26, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him, will the son of man be ashamed when he comes in his glory. Really? I mean, that is a profound moment. Someone who stands before Jesus Christ will hear the books opened and your testimony to them of the gospel will be brought up and will confront them that they heard it and yet they were ashamed of the testimony of Christ and of your witness to them. All of it, every detail. Every detail. So the privilege we have is profound, it's humbling, it's sobering. A privilege of being the messengers of grace and accountability. Jesus teaches us this truth in graphic and vivid terms in verses 8 through 16 of Luke 10. Follow along as I read. Whatever city you enter, Jesus said, and they receive you eat what is set before you. And heal those in it who are sick. And say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off against you or in protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I say to you... It will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it'll be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? you'll be brought down to Hades. The one who listens to you listens to me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. So there it is. Not only will God forever judge those Who reject him, but it'll also bring a more severe judgment to anyone who hinders others from hearing and believing in Jesus Christ. In fact, the more knowledge of the truth a rejector has been exposed to and yet continues to reject it and encourage others to do the same, the more culpable they are before God, and the text clearly says, the more severe will be their judgment. And you know this to be true because you know what the New Testament teaches. I mean, if every human being is created with a basic framework of right and wrong, and Romans 1 says that when everyone faces God, even though they've never even heard the truth of Jesus, they will be without excuse because all that is known about God is enough light to to cause their heart to call out to God in His grace. If they reject it, what will the judgment be for those who've heard? who've seen, who've witnessed, who've heard it repeatedly, who had an opportunity to be a base of operation for missions, who had a place in God's kingdom and and the tentacles of his ministry as he wants to spread his truth around the globe. What happens if you were a place to be a hub, but you rejected it and began to be a barrier for others to accept it? What will the judgment be for that place, that culture, that city, that home, that individual? I know sometimes when you read such stark words, your mind rushes to the fact that you're in Christ. I understand that. Before we came to Christ, the grief is that we did reject Christ and we led people astray. There are people in my past, I only remember the name, I don't even remember the circumstances, but for sure, even though I was at a local Baptist church, even though I had heard the gospel, I had led many in my youth away from the truth who maybe to this day I wouldn't know still reject. And so my mind quickly rushes to the grace of God because I've now been freed from my sin and guilt. I'm now fully in Christ. I have forgiveness for all those sins, including my own past rejection and my sinful influence over others. All of it's completely pardoned. When I read Jesus' words here, my mind immediately rushed to the grace that I have in Christ. Nonetheless, You can't turn your face away completely from what Jesus says because it is very clear that he is teaching his disciples. When you go to present the gospel, those who've been exposed to the gospel but have rejected it and begun to hinder others who believe it, for them it will be a more severe encounter with the living God. And he just unfolds the particulars in these two wonderful Ways, Messengers of grace, messengers of accountability. The text just unfolds in that very easy way. And so let's look at the particulars. First, the messengers of grace in verses 8 and 9. Notice verse 8. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you and heal those in it who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. You remember back in verse 6. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. Matthew 10, the parallel text in verse 11, and whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and stay at his house until you leave that city. This is the, the 70 going into villages they know Jesus is gonna to come to and as we learned from that last study, they're to inquire in the city whether in an official capacity formal or informal the neighborhood they first walk into through the gates and inquire to see if there are those who welcome the message that jesus is the messiah and he's the only savior of sinners and they're god-fearers who want the truth And they're worthy of your mission's base of operation. They're worthy of you to stay there. They're worthy of you to not be uh, partial. Don't go after the house with money. Just eat what they put in front of you. doesn't matter where it is. If it's a house upon which the peace of Christ rests because they believed the gospel and you come to their house, use it as a base of operations, stay there. If there's a city where it becomes obvious to you that that this city's culture is open to the gospel. Stay there. Eat what is set before you. For they have received you, it says. They receive you. They welcome you. They want the message. They don't squelch the message. There are unbelievers in those cultures, those cities. But, but there's nothing formal, nothing ultimate, nothing complete, nothing comprehensive that sends you packing with your gospel message. Okay, we can work here. We found some home with some believers. The gospel has not been thrown out. It's not so far gone. They receive the gospel as their greatest need. They welcome the Savior being proclaimed to them by the messengers. This isn't an assumption that the whole city will believe. It's actually the opposite. It's the, the promise that some will. I love that. I mean, the 70 could go out into the culture around the Transjordan on the Southeast side of Galilee and be pretty discouraged with all those Gentile pagan cities but Jesus planned to go and he was going to take this zigzag route down to Jerusalem for his death and he says go to those places I plan to come to and I'm just telling you there will be some who believe in some of those villages wow what a promise but when you greet people on your way into town you're to find out if someone is welcome, someone is welcoming rather to the gospel. And ask if your message of peace with God through the gospel of Christ is received. And when you find believers there, he says, either who've already believed or they welcome hearing the gospel message in their home, that is a worthy home to set up your mission's headquarters and. Verse nine, heal those in it who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. If you go back to chapter nine, verse two, when he sent the apostles out, he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. Why? Because healing power was a demonstration of the power of the kingdom of God that attended the ministry of the king himself. The kingdom itself isn't here, that's future. Later in chapter 17 and chapter 21, Luke will talk about the kingdom, um, some of your translations say, within you. It's not. It's, it's the kingdom in your midst, the kingdom right in front of you, the kingdom that's reachable by faith. The kingdom is, is upon you because the king is standing right in front of you. When Jesus was resurrected and ascended, he went back to heaven and the future kingdom is yet to come. The point Luke makes, I don't believe, is that there is an earthly form of the kingdom right now. Oh yeah, we're saved. We're kingdom citizens who are redeemed. But what he was saying to these people is, Jesus is on the earth. The king is here. He's in the land. And he's about to come in your city. And he might pass right onto your porch. And he's going to speak to you in the square. Are you welcoming the kingdom that has come upon you? Because when you do, power attends this message. Before the word of God was completed and the miracle of scripture was given to us by which we then preach and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, before that Jesus was the Messiah on the earth saying to people, I am he, and he was attending such a message with these powers to heal the physical body to demonstrate that when he said, I forgive you of your spiritual sin and disease, they couldn't deny it. It was true. You remember when they peeled the roof open and they brought that paralytic, set him right down in front of Jesus in the midst of that crowd, and he said, All right, which is easier? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? And they said, Well, obviously it's easier to say, Your sins are forgiven. Why? It's unverifiable. You know, somebody can say they absolve you from your sin or of your sin, like some religious systems do today, but how do we know? Jesus said, but in order that you know that the Son of Man, that is himself, has authority on earth to forgive sin. I say to this man, rise up and walk. And he got up and went home. Now you can't deny it. He can heal the physical disease and he can heal the heart disease. And that's what was symbolized here. You go into a home, they welcome you, your gospel message, then heal everybody in it as a demonstration that you are able with this message to see the heart transformed from darkness to light, forgiven. Your spiritual disease healed. So it was experienced in this life-giving power. To proclaim the kingdom of God then was to proclaim its inauguration in the arrival of the king to do his first advent work. We're the messengers of its requirements for citizenship, repentance, and faith. And to proclaim the joyful anticipation of its fullest expression in the return of the king, in the future to set up his kingdom where righteousness will reign under his rule. Because of these realities, we also warn sinners of what's to come. That's the problem with gospel ministry today. Believers in their interaction in the spheres of influence and gospel proclamation and living it out in front of people, family members, coworkers, even our life in the community, believers cannot be compelling in persuading men to be reconciled to God if you do not really believe and own the reality that the second coming is going to bring a warning and a judgment. Is it not a profound privilege to tell someone about the gospel? Yes, profound from two angles. One, I just gave them the message of grace by which God promises he will heal hearts. It's not my power, it's his, but yet somehow through my weak and feeble proclamation he saves them. You've seen it happen right here in our midst. But yet also, it's profoundly humbling to realize that my words will come back to haunt that individual should they reject it. Because to reject my words, the words of the gospel, is to reject the Savior. To reject the Savior is to reject the Father. To reject God. You don't have a relationship with God without Christ. John 5, he who honors the Son honors the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. You cannot have a relationship with your version of God or God the Father or the God that that you've conjured up in your mind or even the God you think resides in Scripture revealed there. You cannot have a relationship with him apart from Jesus Christ. And so it's profound when you give someone the gospel and they reject it, even if it's not the final word on them, even if you're going to give it to them over and over again until they die in their sin, even then it is profoundly humbling to know that every rejection will come back to haunt them at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. If Listen, beloved, if you don't believe that, your message will not be as compelling your heart will not be as compelled. Jesus, when he was on the earth, he exercised the power of his kingdom. Power over disease, power over death, power over evil and demons, power over nature, the power to rule the earth, its elements, its topography, the power to rule over the forces of darkness, the power to rule over the kingdoms of men, the power to transform a sinful heart. That's what was proclaimed. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Jesus said when he came into Galilee. Mark 1. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Not that the kingdom is about to be set up in its earthly form, But the kingdom is right in your face, as close as you believing in me. I'm the words of the kingdom. I'm the person of the kingdom. I'm the king of the kingdom. I'm the power of the kingdom. I'm I'm right here in front of you. So being a messenger of grace means that this this is based solely on reception and it's experienced in a transformed heart and life. We've talked about that. That's what we look for. But now Jesus turns his attention to this accountability side. We're also messengers of accountability. Verse 10, what a striking contrast. Whatever city you enter, and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your city which clings to our feet will wipe off in protest against you. Yet, here it is, be certain of this, or... Literally, perceive this at its deepest level. Know this that the kingdom of God has come near. Wow. So the first was based solely on reception. This is based solely on rejection, whatever city you enter and they do not receive you. Not simply one house, not, not simply one family, not even a, a city government, but an entire culture of unbelief in that place. Either it's hostile to the gospel or it's just indifferent. The gospel gets no traction in the very culture that has so enveloped that town, enveloped that village, and the message of Jesus, therefore, is outright rejected and not welcomed at all. It's rejected in the shopping district downtown. It's rejected formally at City Hall. It's rejected in the entertainment center. It's rejected by the teachers in the schools. It's rejected by the neighborhoods and by the practiced religion of the village. Jesus says, look, if the city's entire culture is one of self-made people, self-made religion, or hedonism, or materialism, or whatever, they might as well put a sign on the city gate, the good news of Christianity, the message of forgiveness in Jesus Christ is simply not welcome here. And Jesus says to these 70, if that's the case, because I'm on my way to Jerusalem, because the king is on the earth because I've not yet died, but I will and rise again and will ascend to heaven and send the spirit for a global work of grace. Then these that I'm gonna visit on my way to Jerusalem, I want you to do something. I want you to make the warning so formal they will know that you are my 70, they will know that you're coming to herald me, and that I plan to come to that city, and if there's already a place, uh, a culture in that city that will not accept me, I want a formal declaration so that when I bypass it, everyone will know why I bypassed it, because you already have seen enough truth, you've already been surrounding the whole area of Galilee, I've been nearly a year and a half doing so much revelation, so many miracles, so much power on display, and so much gospel offering of grace, you'll get nothing, and I want it formally known. You say, can Christ do that? Sure he can. He can lock entire cultures in darkness. Absolutely. These were 70 disciples who were to be Jesus' formal proclamation to them that Jesus bypassed them. It was a warning. It was a formal outward warning in that day. What's, what's that mean, first of all? Well, the implication is this is a call to give the whole counsel of God, beloved. I mean, we're not gonna do some formal protest and wipe dust off our feet because Jesus is in heaven. We have the spirit of God and we go. We just go into the darkest places of the world. And yet at the same time, when you go, you do notice there are entire cultures locked against the gospel from top to bottom. And we do the same thing that these men did, only it's not a formal uh, representation of Jesus in his earthly ministry. It's a warning nonetheless, the whole counsel of God. Hey, I'm proclaiming Christ to you. I'm calling you to turn from your sin. I'm opening the scriptures and showing you what God has said. I'm helping you understand that you can have complete forgiveness in Jesus, but it will only come by faith alone, and you've got to trash your own works. But if you don't, I cannot shy away from showing you from scripture that rejection of the truth is perilous. And you'll answer for it. You're culpable, accountable, and and you will give an account of every moment where you saw and heard and knew. We warned them that the kingdom of God has come near in the sense that the power to transform their heart and life has been fully displayed in the cross of Christ. That's what we do. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. What is the word of Christ? Christ's work, his person, his revelation. Man, if they refuse the free gift of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, they risk the Lord removing his grace from them, and they're going to be held uniquely accountable for having heard and turned away. In fact, look at verse 12. It is experienced not in life-giving power, but in soul-terrifying wrath. Verse 12, I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. It's a proverbial statement, but it just literally jumps out at us. As I said, judgment will be more severe when you've been exposed to more of the truth. And as I said earlier from Romans 1, if you stand before God, you've never heard the gospel, which nobody in the United States till these last two generations could actually say. But even if you stand before God, I've never heard the gospel. Romans 1 says you're without excuse because you look around you and you can see that God is more powerful and you're going to give an account. Just read it, Romans 1, 19 to 21. And so if that's true, then what will the judgment be to those whom the power and message of the kingdom has come near, face to face, right in front of you, with grace upon grace? I mean, look at verse 12 and just look at the name of that city, Sodom. I mean, you do a double take when you read this proverbial statement by the Lord. In the ancient world, Sodom stood for all things paganism. It was known to be an entire city culture and the surrounding land to which it spread. It was an entire city culture of anti-God sentiment and the pursuit of immoral perversions. And what is striking here is that Jesus compares Sodom's exposure to the truth with that of each of the cities and villages to which the 70 missionaries would go with the message of Jesus. Sodom had no gospel. I mean, perhaps with the small exception of Abraham, his nephew Lot, who lived on the fringes of the city, did commerce with the city so much so that his testimony was dulled. He was even going to give his daughters to some sodomites in a terribly corrupt city. He'd become business savvy, but later we're told in the New Testament that his conscience tore him apart about it every day. And yet, Sodom was without a strong witness of the grace of God. Sodom had no prophet come to to proclaim against it repeatedly. Sodom had no displays of the awesome power of God as Egypt had been graced with when Moses was was delivering the Jews. And so if these disciples enter a city of Galilee where everyone has heard, and many have even witnessed, nearly a year and a half of some of the most up-close and personal ministry from Jesus. They've heard the greatest preacher. They've known the awesome displays of power over all of the things we mentioned earlier. And if those cities turn and run from gospel missionaries, if those cities reject them, if those cities tell them, pack up and get out of here, Jesus says they're going to be judged to a greater degree than even the most wicked city of the ancient world. And then Jesus follows it up with illustrations. Notice these woes, which literally is language that indicates the curse of Almighty God. Look at this, woe to you Chorazin, woe to you Bethsaida. For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, you would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it'll be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. So he mentions Chorazin and Bethsaida and then he throws into the mix the hub, the place. Capernaum, where Jesus himself spent his days in Galilee Peter's home and you Capernaum will not be exalted to heaven will you you will be brought down to Hades when Hades uh, though normally referring to the place of the dead when it's used in contrast to heaven like Luke uses it here and elsewhere it, it is a reference to eternal judgment Chorazin we're not sure where it was From tradition, uh, the best they can tell, it might have been two to five miles from Capernaum. Bethsaida, of course, was a little closer even as a village to Capernaum. So, two villages, either side, perhaps on one side, one of the either sides of Capernaum, where Jesus (laughs) resided. Bethsaida was the home of some of the disciples. So, think about the preaching ministry, the powerful displays, the converted hearts, the healings, the demons being cast out. I mean, from day one, even when Jesus went into the synagogue at Capernaum, and the demon rushed in to confront him, there there he heals demoniacs. He has power over the forces of darkness. Capernaum is seeing it. Bethsaida is hearing about it. They're seeing it. Chorazin, wherever it was located, was seeing it. All that northern region of Galilee, it spread from there. It was the hub of truth. It was the place where truth was powerfully exploding and the message of the disciples was spreading and there were hillsides with teachings and people all over the place. It was a buzz. And Jesus says, look, if I'd done all that in Tyre and Sidon, woe. Two wicked cities, Gentile cities, no less. So, I mean, this is this is coming right at the throat of the Jewish leaders who always knew of Isaiah's judgments pronounced against Tyre and Sidon. In Isaiah 23 and 28. Those judgments that came against these cities were because they were pagan cities. They were the symbol of sin itself. They were the symbol of God's eternal consequences. And in Israel, they were a warning to the Gentile world about rejecting the God of Israel. But here they were being compared to these cities that were adjacent to Capernaum. (laughs) And he says, had they... Had the exposure to truth that you've had, they would have repented. Sackcloth and ashes is just the idea that for days and days and days they would have wept. It would have spread like repentance through their families. They would have gotten the entire nation, the entire tribes, the entire peoples, even those pagan nations. They would have, it would have spread through those places so that gospel ministry and gospel rescue would have lit up the Gentile continent had they known what you know. I think sometimes about the influence that would have happened had Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum actually believed. Think of the influence. Think of the influence. I mean, for all we know, Capernaum wasn't even hostile. They were rather indifferent. Jesus lived there quite comfortably. He wasn't thrown out of town. The disciples weren't thrown out of town. Peter wasn't uh, brought before the bar of uh, the city hall council all the time. At most, it was indifferent. Maybe Bethsaida and Chorazin were hostile, but Capernaum was, whatever. Think of the influence they could have had. So not only did they reject as cities, and Jesus is indicting them here, but the influence they could have had was hindered. They would have hindered others from believing. And Jesus says, Tyre and Sidon, in the judgment for all their Phoenician wickedness, They're going to fare better than you who had me right there. I think about this nation. Gospel privilege, gospel grace, gospel accountability. I think about Europe and Indo-Europe gospel grace, gospel accountability. I think about everywhere we've sent missionaries, everywhere Europe has sent missionaries, everywhere some of these other wonderful places where God has done a work has sent out missionaries. Gospel grace and gospel accountability. I don't know where we're at in the scheme of God's ultimate plan, but we're certainly beginning from the highest levels to hinder the truth, let alone reject it. And worse, the church, which should be the conscience of the culture, we should be so compelled by what is to come and the, and the haunting judgments that are gonna to come to those who hear our message, we should be so compelled by that as to live holy lives and great uh, proclamation brought to all of our spheres of influence with holy living and patient gospel message and persuading men to be reconciled. But what has the church Consistently found itself doing. Oh, we want to be like the culture. Oh, we want the culture to like us. Oh, we just want to be attractive. Oh, can we just not have so much arguing? Can we just not fight for the truth so much? I'm tired. So, could it be that this serves as a secondary warning to believers that if we become weak in our message of reconciliation or the way that we live out the transforming power of Christ that we too could be guilty of hindering the truth and from someone from believing it? And he mentions Capernaum. The greatest culpability of all. Well, Jesus makes the bookend to close this little section of illustration and, and uh, parabolic truth. He says, the one who listens to you listens to me. There it is. That, that's all we want. We want to know, is this a moment of grace or is this a moment of accountability? If you listen to Grace Emmanuel Bible Church's pulpit. And you're checking to see if these things are so from God's word and it is the proclamation of the person of Christ and the real gospel of Christ by faith alone, no works, just the righteousness of Christ and the perfect death to satisfy his father's wrath for sinners who will believe in him so that they're forgiven. If it's that message, then all we want to know is whether or not it's welcomed or rejected. When it's rejected, we don't, we don't get upset. We get burdened. We don't get angry. We get concerned. <laughs> we don't go silent. We get persuasive, prayerful. When it's welcomed, we know. We know that it must be the Jesus revealed in Scripture that it is, is welcomed. And therefore, we know peace has come to this house. And the peace of Christ. Dwells within them by the Spirit of God. And if they reject our message, they're not rejecting us personally, they're rejecting Christ. And if they reject Christ, they have no relationship with God. Satan is constantly crafting these notions that you can have a relationship with God on your own terms or your own version of God and just excise Christ out of the picture. We'll even have religious systems and idols that use the name of Christ but not the name Jesus. Why? Because Christ is the uh, anointed one, it's the ethereal, uh, in some people's minds, the ethereal name that you can apply to every kind of New Age idea. No, we proclaim Jesus Christ and you must come on His terms to Him who is revealed in Scripture. If you don't come to Him, you have no relationship with the living God. Now, you remember I read the Gospel of John. Let me just remind you of what it says. Jesus said to those who were standing around him, I want all to honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And then he says, you, speaking to the Pharisees, you think that As you search the scriptures and try to keep the law, you think that you'll find salvation in your own righteousness, in the keeping of the scriptures by your own righteousness. But it is the scriptures that should be telling you that I am your only hope, that you cannot obey the scriptures. I'm your only hope. But why did Jesus say they they were missing it? Because they sought glory from one another. They sought the glory of man, the glory of self, and the glory of puffing one another up with all that man can achieve on his own without Christ. That's what they sought. And Jesus said, I didn't come to do that. I came to seek the glory of the one who sent me. And then he says, there are going to be witnesses that testify against the rejecter. Moses is one of them. Not just what Moses wrote but the fact that Moses was a believer in this same God. Moses wrote it, inspired by God to write it, a miracle of prophecy written by Moses. And yes, Moses will be standing there, not with his personal judgment, but with the words that God told him to speak. And he spoke them, and he spoke them faithfully. And they're going to be brought up against the individual. Deuteronomy says heaven and earth will be brought as a witness. Everyone you ever heard the gospel from will be brought from a witness, as a witness. John 5, all of your deeds will be called forth. All of them. Any moment you ever heard, any time you ever saw, any time you sat on the beach and contemplated the wonder of creation and then denied God's existence. Any time you as physicians um, work on a human body and you see the wonder of God in that and you absolutely reject it or are indifferent to it. Every single moment. And so I suspect that for those who reject and influence others to reject, it'll be more tolerable for pagan cities with less knowledge than you had in the judgment. What's the implication for you and me? It's just profound that when we persuade men, we understand it from those two perspectives messengers of grace and messengers of accountability. Why? Because it keeps us in the persuading mode. Not the persuading mode in that every conversation is is some emphatic call, but persuasion in the sense that we know God will use a holy life, whether it's a long time friendship, where you have casual conversations over coffee or a one-time meeting where you say something or a message in a Bible study and someone responds to it or the person at the bus stop who wanted to strike up a conversation or the hospital bed of a, of a loved one who doesn't know Christ, any circumstance you find yourself in, what keeps you in the profound persuasive mode, pleading as it were with God and through us be reconciled to God, is this reality that when you say something to someone it is grace and accountability. I, I, I think we, in good theology, get the first part, but we're ones who tend to shy away from the second part. And yet that's the very thing they're going to hear if they do not answer. So we've got to pray, don't we? <laughs> pray for wisdom compelling persuasiveness, holy living. Pray for conversation and friendship. Pray for relationships over time. Pray for God to spare people till they hear. Pray for our country. Pray for our community. Pray for the homes you step foot in. Pray for every divine appointment that comes because you're a messenger of grace and a messenger of accountability. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the grace and the accountability of the words of Christ here in this passage. How profound a moment it must have been as certain villages saw those 70 disciples walk out of the gate having found no welcome place. And what a tragedy that as they reported back to you and gave you the names of those villages, you would not pass through there. How tragic that the sweet families in those cities who lived in stubborn unbelief and ignorance and are without excuse, how sad that they were never going to see your sweet countenance never going to see you touch someone ill in those cities on your way to your death for souls. But sometimes when we give the gospel, people reject it, they twist it, they find ways around it, they they just don't, they squirm under it. They, you might hear us once and then not again for years. They might reject us for years, and then suddenly begin to hear us? We, we don't know. But each time, we need to be faithful to show the light of your countenance through our life and to open the word of God and let them look into the face of our Savior. Lord, don't close people off. Be kind and gracious and merciful according to your character and yet your holiness demands that you you recognize rejection and you even mark it down and people store up wrath for the day of judgment you are so patient and we're grateful for your patience may we be better instruments in your hands better messengers loving people giving the gospel with persuasive tenderness, with compelling words and a life that is transformed. And where we fail in these things, strengthen us to to be your mouthpiece in even greater ways. Lord, use our ministries, our missionaries, our church, our workplaces. And make us a bright light so that people receive our message and therefore receive you and receive the Father who sent you. And we ask it humbly, dependently, for your glory. Amen.